Hey, Jay, you know how the X-Men cartoon was generally really good about being on top of current comics events? Absolutely, uh, if often with its own unique twist, given the difference in production times. Did the cartoon do anything with Scott and Jean's wedding? It was such a big deal in the comics, it's hard to imagine that it didn't make it into the animated series, too. Oh, it sure did. Actually, the cartoon beat the comics to it. Scott and Jean got married on screen at the start of the second season, a full five months before X-Men number 30 hit the stands. Oh, that's awesome! Well, more or less awesome. Sinister definitely kidnapped them from their honeymoon. Eh, they're the X-Men, it happens. Also, it kinda turned out they weren't legally married. Because of anti-mutant laws? Because the priest turned out to be more enacting complex revenge for his apparent death in the first episode of the series. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 254 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a truly momentous X-Occasion that happened, like, uh, quite a few years ago back in 1994. But still, today, we're going to be talking about the wedding of Scott Summers and Jean Grey. Speaking of soap opera, and there are a couple aspects of this, and, and really Marvel weddings in general, that tend to intensely overlap with the soap opera opera category, and one of them is that they tend to end up weirdly transmedia. In this case, that's going to be mostly across comics, but also with the involvement of an actual real-life fashion designer. In the case of the much later wedding of Storm and Black Panther, there would actually be an actual soap opera tie-in. I, I didn't know that, what? Yeah, that was totally a thing. I don't have the details, but we'll get there someday. Oh man, that's exciting. Now, I do know that there was one, at least one comic book store at the time in 1994 that hosted a reception for Scott and Jean's wedding. I suspect more than one, but I found documentation of one. Honestly, if you're going to throw an event around this, that's probably the way to do it. And it's probably the only way to do it that's not, like, kind of creepy. Yeah, probably much better than throwing, like, a wedding night. Oh god, that, that's a very Mr. Sinister way to do it. <laughs> god, it totally is. So, longtime listeners may recall that we actually sort of covered this wedding way back in episode 22. However, those same longtime listeners may recall that we covered it in combination with a ton of other material in that episode and a number of discursions. And so now we're going to take a look at it as it falls naturally within the continuity that we're covering. And honestly, I'm really looking forward to the chance to take a closer look at the two issues we're covering today because they're both terrific and they both really deserve the time and attention that we really didn't have for them that time. Yeah, we are very much in the good part of the 90s right now. And honestly, I think this is one of the higher highs of that good part. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think a lot of that, a ton of that has to do with the combination of Fabian Nicesa and Andy Kubert, who really, really just just knock this story out of the park. That they do. But this is a story that has been led up to by so many different events over so many decades. Do you want to try to sum it up in, like, three sentences? Yeah, let's do it. Previously on X-Men... Once upon a time, two extremely traumatized teenagers were recruited into a paramilitary mutant school, fell in love, and grew up. 
Things got complicated, as one of them got replaced by a cosmic force with her face, which then died, the other got married to her doomed clone and had a baby, and the first came back to life, eventually having the cosmic force and clone's memories crammed into her head. But that's all mostly resolved, and now they're getting married. With all of that backstory uh, summed up so quickly that it was probably pretty useless, but I'm still very proud of that, let's talk about the issues we're going to be covering today. Okay, so we're going to be looking at two issues today, and they technically fall sort of in the midst of one another. One is X-Men The Wedding Album. This is this is a standalone. It was, um, I think, Perfect Bound, wasn't it? It wasn't Perfect Bound, but it was a much larger format. It was magazine-sized, so I could never fit it into my long boxes. I couldn't put it into a standard bag and board, but I had these magazine cases that it fit really well into, right next to the X-Men and Avengers 30th Anniversary magazines that I also had. Well done. Thanks. And then set in the dead center of that is X-Men number 30, which of course is about the wedding itself. Exactly. So two parts of the wedding album, the wedding itself in the middle. So we're going to be going back and forth. We'll do the first part of the wedding album, then the wedding, then the second part of the wedding album. Plus a bunch of framing material and possibly some yellow snow. Yeah, I still can't believe you put that in the outline, but we'll get to that. If I had to think about that, you have to think about it too. This is why it's great to be a podcaster. You can inflict all of the terrible parts of your brain upon the world. It's also technically podcast rules. Like, it's 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 co-hosting rules. Yeah, legit. So, X-Men The Wedding Album. We mentioned the strange format of this, and that does make it feel kind of special. It does make it feel like a tie-in to a special event, which it very much was. I also really appreciate that it not only covers the time around the wedding, but it covers a little bit of history as well, just in tiny little bits, specifically the inside front and back covers. Those are monochrome single panels, each of Scott and Jean kissing from a different story, but both with Jean replying to what Scott says with, and I, you, Scott, with all my heart. The inside front cover image is from Uncanny X-Men 129, and the inside back cover image is from 137. So, uh, you know, some Dark Phoenix Saga stuff going on there, some pretty important uh, parts of Scott and Jean's history, if you assume that the Phoenix was kind of close enough to Jean, which, whatever. I was gonna say, no, what you're saying is that neither of those is actually Jean. Right, but Jean did inherit the Phoenix Force's memories, and the Phoenix Force did base itself off of Jean, so I'm gonna go ahead and say... Forget it, Jake. It's X-Men Town. Fair enough. So let's start with the first story from X-Men The Wedding Album, called Something Old, Something New, Something Borrowed, Something Blue and Gold. And okay, I get that they're just adding on and gold to the famous phrase about what you should get somebody for, or I guess the bride for her wedding, but it, it would parse... It would, it would sound so much better if it was something old, something new, something borrowed, something gold and blue, because then the second and fourth lines rhyme. Either way, the rhythm would be off, though. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're really not going to have a full win here. Just doesn't scan. Well, this non-scanning titled story is nonetheless written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Ian Churchill, inked by Harry Candelario, and colored by Chris Mathis. The story opens with the caption, Jubilation Lee on Marriage. You dress up in some mega-priced costume that you're only going to wear for this one day of your entire life... Agree to give up your own secret identity to some guy forever and ever till death splits you asunder. And all your buds and family units are supposed to party on afterhand like you're not making the biggest goof of your life? 
And this is Jubilee with a sheet wrapped around her like it's a wedding dress holding some flowers she found and looking so goddamn disgusted with the entire situation. She's hanging out with Jean while Jean's going through some old boxes, getting ready for the wedding, preparing for her wedding dress to be delivered. And Jean asks when Jubilee got to be such a cynic. Jubilee asks what that is, to which Jean responds... Someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. Which I had quoted for years and years, thinking that it was a Jean Grey-specific line. Oh, buddy, no, that's Oscar Wilde. It is. It's from Lady Windermere's Fan, which is the second time we've, we've referenced Lady Windermere's Fan on this podcast. And now I know. But nonetheless, it's a great definition of cynicism, whether it was Oscar Wilde or Jean Grey who said it, which is a strange set of people to put into a sentence. But given that this isn't Starman that we're discussing, we're going to go, we're going to shelve Oscar Wilde and go back to Gene for now. Jubilee's take is that putting so much trust into one relationship seems dumb because that person might up and, you know, hypothetically ride off on a Harley. But no, 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 she doesn't want to talk about it. God damn it. This isn't about anything in particular. It ain't going to happen. I only do that crying thing once a year. But Jean is really good at bringing Jubilee out. Jean is an excellent communicator. She's great at empathy. And Jubilee does eventually admit that, yeah, she does, in fact, miss Logan. And then immediately misdirects. How about those Mets? Speaking of things I quoted for years, that became my go-to. Let's change the subject, obviously! Which I picked up from you, but I also thought it was a reference to a Dave Barry column. So... You know, I I guess we're pretty much even here. Yeah, yeah, because there was that book where Dave Barry was telling you how to communicate in business, and you were supposed to just talk about sports and say generic things like the ump really made a bad call last night. No, it it was, uh, did you see, the water cooler talk, did you see the game last night? Man, they made some really bad calls. Yeah, which, I don't know, I work for a comic book company, I don't know how people talk in normal offices. I mean, I don't know if my office is normal, they're all very, very into tennis, but as far as I can tell, no other sports. Huh, I played tennis briefly. I got sort of okay. Good job. Ping pong is more fun. Less running about. Clearly one of us hasn't been watching Olympic ping pong. Uh, true. They stand, like, really far back from the tables, don't they? Like, really far back. Serious competition ping pong is much, much more athletic than I think most people who've played it casually would guess. It's also at least part of the basis of the existence of the U.S.'s diplomatic relationship with China, which is a whole other long, complicated story. Huh, and here I was just thinking about how Shatterstar would probably really love Olympic ping pong. I disagree with you on that point. I feel like there are a large number of Olympic sports he'd enjoy a good deal more. Specifically, um, and this is obviously a different seasonal Olympics, but I'm specifically ice skating because it's very, very, very cinematic, but also involves real sharp blades and significant chance of serious injury. Mm, Shatty on ice. Thanks for ruining everything. You're welcome. Everything. Anyway, Jean comforts Jubilee, but before they can bond very much, before Jean can convince Jubilee to actually open up for more than a second, Iceman comes and interrupts, because Iceman does that sort of thing. But in this case, he's got a good reason. Specifically, Jean's fashion designer friend from her model days, Nicole Miller, is here about the wedding dress. Now, 
Those of you who've been with us since the Silver Age or who've read the Silver Age may recall that Jean was a fashion model for a hot second in Uncanny X-Men number 48. And I really want to quote the photographer in one of the very few panels in which Jean was a fashion model because, boy howdy, Silver Age. She's fresh, boss lady, like an Easter bunny or an oven-hot biscuit, and that's the name of our game! Is, is he okay? Is he having a stroke? No, it was the 60s. Everybody talked like that. All the time. They never stopped. I'm fairly sure that's not true. Well, that guy did. This is, this is also the issue um, that, that is, is home to um, Scott's very, very short-lived radio career uh, during the, the brief era when the X-Men split up. Is, it also, is this the one that teases Metoxa the Lava Man, too? I don't remember, but I do know that the title was Beware Computo, Commander of the Robot Hive. I always beware Computo, Commander of the Robot Hive. It's just good general advice. You know, it's one of the first things I learned when I was a kid. It is, it is. And, you know, people say that the Silver Age doesn't offer anything. Mm. Now, Nicole Miller, the aforementioned dress designer, she's actually a real human being in our real Earth. Yeah, she's actually still an active fashion designer. Yeah, and uh, we actually found an interview linked from, I don't know, probably Real Gentleman of Leisure somewhere, uh, from a 1994 Chicago, Chicago Tribune article. In that article, she says, I love doing it. Jean is a realistic figure, so I couldn't make her look high-tech or futuristic. When she got married, she wouldn't want an outrageous dress. It's sort of a classic, modern look. And you know, I gotta say, it works. Dude, I fucking love Jean's dress. It is really cool looking. It's interesting looking. It has, like, it has a hood and kind of a capey part. And also, it's really, really awesomely bias cut. And I have strong feelings about... 20s and 30s fashion, and yeah, bias cuts forever. And actually, in the middle of this issue, after the story we're currently talking about, we see Nicole Miller's drawing of Jean. Um, Jean is literally three-quarters legs in that picture. Is that how you fashion? Okay, so that's specifically a fashion illustration, and those are not drawn to look like realistic people. They are drawn with fairly specific proportions, which may have some practical function, but at this point, I suspect, are in large part just based around industry t- tradition. Oh, okay. Because, yeah, in that picture, she mainly reminds me of the Bell Dam from Coraline, you know, in the spider web. Creepy. Yeah, a little bit. But it is a really, really cool dress, and we'll certainly throw that in the as-mentioned. So, Jean goes to talk to Nicole Miller about these terrifying legs that she apparently has, leaving Jubilee with Jean's old boxes of clothing, telling Jubilee that she can, you know, look through stuff, play around, see if anything fits. And so she does, and she finds a kind of terrifically Silver Age-looking old yellow beret, which is actually kind of great. Yup, and she also finds Jean's old green Marvel Girl mini-dress, which uh, Jubilee sadly realizes will not fit until she, quote, fills out. Yeah, there are definitely costumes that you can't really wear unless you're a woman drawn by John Byrne. (laughs) There is that. I could totally not wear that costume. Jubilee also finds Jean Grey's old diary. And of course, even though Jubilee tells herself not to read it six times in a row, obviously she fireworks the lock open and starts to do so. I feel like her telling herself not to read it is mostly a formality so that she can say she tried to resist. Exactly. It's very much in character for Jubilee. I do like Scott Loddell's Jubilee a great deal. 
And then we get to something that I have really, really major problems with in this story. Yeah, the format of Jean's diary is weird. The format of Jean's diary is super weird, and the font is so bad. So here's the thing about using cursive fonts for handwriting in comics. They fall into what I think of as the lettering uncanny valley. They're obviously there to look like handwriting, but they don't. They look like cursive fonts. Yeah, and it's also not helped by the fact that it's light blue ink on a white background, so you kind of have to squint to read it. There's also a thick-bordered large picture covering most of each page with a silhouette of Jubilee with only, like, her blue shorts and yellow socks colored in sitting on top. I kind of like that conceit, but the handwriting, it's hard to read, and it overlaps the edge of the picture, and it's just weird. The lettering choices here are, are just goddamn abysmal. And I guess this is what happens when you don't have Chris Claremont writing, um, and so you don't have an immediate go-to for someone who can do really good loopy uh, teenage girl handwriting. Yeah, yeah, Claremont did his own teenage girl handwriting, didn't he? If I remember correctly, Orzakowski just cut and pasted from this from the scripts the scripts for that because it just it because it, it worked for for Kitty's diary specifically. That's awesome. But format aside, I do really like these entries. This is supposed to be a wedding tie-in, and so what we see in the entries is the history of Jean in general, but also the history of her relationship with Scott from the very, very start. So I noticed that you call out really liking the way she um, the way that her diary entries are phrased when she's a kid. I disagree very, very strongly with that. They very much read like an adult writing a really awkward version of kid speak. And I guess there's also the fact that a lot of those kid-isms, a kid would maybe say verbally, but wouldn't necessarily write down. Or wouldn't even usually say verbally. Like, adult versions of kid talk and baby talk have really weirdly, idiomatically and structurally specific constructions that have very little to do with the way that kids actually talk. Yeah, I guess the word bestest, which was one of the things I noticed here, you really only see in fiction, don't you? You really only see it in, like, fiction and sitcoms. Yeah. But it's still really nice, and it's nice to see, you know, the young, uncertain girl that Jean started as being taught by the professor and taken in by this genuinely excellent dude. Like, this is an area where Professor Xavier is great. Like, during this time, he's just wonderful. And hearing about, you know, things as obscure as that one time she contacted Scott's mind when they were testing Cerebro in an X-Men classic backup story, stuff like that. And eventually, when Scott finally declared his love for her and they kissed for the first time, and it's just lovely and romantic, and Jean feels very real. She feels very three-dimensionally sketched out in this diary. Jean also feels pretty angry when she comes in and catches Jubilee reading it. But I do appreciate, well, a couple things. First of all, I appreciate that Ian Churchill draws a gloriously embarrassed and mortified Jubilee as Jubilee, like, holds the diary out in front of her and apologizes. Yeah, Churchill is a really good choice for an artist on this. He's great. Honestly, I would have loved to have seen Churchill do Ileana's death issue in Uncanny Number 303. Oh man, yeah. Yeah, that would have been that would have been really good. But I also appreciate that the main thing Jean is upset about is not that Jubilee broke into her old diary, but that Jubilee didn't just ask Jean anything that Jubilee wanted to know because that's the kind of dynamic they have with Jean as this sort of older sister semi-mother-ish figure to Jubilee. 
Well, kind of. It's not a dynamic that they've really had at all until relatively recently, and it's one that Jubilee is still pretty resistant to. But it is one that I enjoy. We're seeing little bits and pieces of more and more. I do love their dynamic, and it's unfortunate that we haven't seen them together in quite a long time. I mean, to be fair, Gene was dead for a long time, but, you know, still. And Jubilee tries to explain why, even though she feels bad about reading the diary, she's kind of glad she did. She talks about her parents. I never got to really know anything about them, as you know, adults. People who lived their whole lives, fell in love, got married, had me. But now that she's learned about what got these two adults, Scott and Jean, to where they were, she's feeling better about a lot of things, and one of them is the idea of marriage. The fact that Scott and Jean are going to take this step. And... Yeah, so Jean decides to, you know, invite Jubilee to help check out her dress, and that's the end of that story, pretty much. And it is genuinely lovely. And so, that being done, let's jump right into the event that dress was worn at. Let's talk about X-Men number 30, The Ties That Bind. This is written by Fabian Nesseza, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Matt Ryan, and colored by Joe Rosas. This issue is so good. It's so good. I am, like, every time I come back to this issue, I come back sort of with it stuck in my head that a lot of how strongly I feel about it and how much I like it is, is you know, sentimentalism and nostalgia. And every time I read it, I, I get reminded that, no, this is actually just a fucking phenomenal piece of comics. Oh, yeah. Nesieza has such a an excellent understanding of all the characters in this. And that's the thing. It's the wedding of Scott and Jean, but it's not just about Scott and Jean. It's also very much about Professor Xavier, and it's also just about the X-Men in general. Exactly. Like Uncanny X-Men 308, which we covered a couple weeks ago, this is, in a lot of ways, a chance for the characters to kind of, and the readers, to catch their breath, and a chance to narratively check in with a lot of the X-Men, and for them to all do the same. A lot of the arc leading up to this, in fact, has been about pausing and taking stock of how far the characters have come and of where they are and what this feels like is kind of the culmination and resolution of not only the most recent arc, but in a lot of ways, the decades of X-Men leading up to it. Yeah, this feels earned. I think a lot of the time, uh, some of the big events of the 90s can feel gimmicky. And as much as this absolutely was a gimmick, I mean, they were marketing the hell out of this, it feels earned. It absolutely feels earned. I'm trying to think of another similar story that that feels this earned. I think, honestly, that Rogue and Gambit's wedding did. Yeah. But it was also a very, very different shape of story and earned in a very, very different way and played out in a very different way. And I mean, I think if they'd done something like this for Rogue and Gambit's wedding, it would have felt gratuitous. Agreed. The fact that that was just sort of like tossed on to the end of an issue that ostensibly initially had a different story fit Rogue and Gambit pretty well. But a story like this, Scott and Jean are like the elder statesmen of the X-Men in a lot of ways. And so, of course, it would have to be a big to-do that all of the X-Men would be involved with because this isn't just a milestone for Scott and Jean. This is a milestone for everything the X-Men represent. This is also the first thing that's brought them together in a really, really long time on this scale, maybe ever, that hasn't been a tragedy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the last time they were all together like this, a little girl was dead and Magneto tried to drop a space station on the city. Well, and the time before that was someone else's funeral, and so on and so on. Yeah, exactly. So, 
There are two framing devices in this story. One of them is, is less framing, I think, than punctuation, and those are letters from Logan, um, which, which sort of punctuate the beginning and, and end of, of, of the issue. And the first one is is long, but Miles wants to read the whole thing, and so go for it, buddy. That's, you know, I this is this is another one of those issues that has so much detail that's so well constructed that it's 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 hard to go through on the podcast without wanting to go into way too much detail. I will say in context of this letter, though, something I want to call out after complaining about the wedding album is that letterer Bill Oakley um, very clearly has handwritten all of Logan's um, letters and in cursive, in addition to the credits for this issue. And this must be where I got it stuck in my head that Logan writes in perfect Palmer script, because yeah, he does. But think about it. Logan's been around for a long time, and he's the best there is at what he does, and what he does is write in beautiful cursive. Yeah, yeah, he does. Now, these letters, I believe, are the letters that Logan left for everybody when he left at the end of Wolverine number 75. They are, yeah, and we saw some of the one that he wrote to Jubilee. But without further ado, Gene and Scott, what am I going to say? I don't even know. I've never been too good at writing down the things I feel inside. I just wanted to let you two know how much you mean to me, how much the things you did for me mattered. You guys are something special, and most times, you don't even see it. You go together like fire and ice, like a hurricane in its eye. It sounds strange, but it fits. One can't exist without the other. Each one makes the whole stronger than the parts. I'm leaving for now, because the old knucklehead's parts ain't better than the whole anymore. Besides, it's time to take the next step in life. Maybe you should look at each other with new eyes, the way I've had to look at myself, and ask yourselves, isn't it time we do the same thing? Isn't it time we took the next step in our lives, too? Love? Logan. So it's a little weird to me that um, he is, is, is definitely, like, admonishing them to do exactly the thing that they're doing. Well, right, but Logan left a while ago, before they got engaged. She didn't know that that was going to happen. Yeah, I guess that's true. Although this comes, this comes around when they get married, and I, I sort of assume that he knows. And I assume that he knows because he's been lurking around, as we're going to find out for sure later this, this issue. Well, there is that. So the other... The other framing narration, and what runs through the issue, is framing narration from Professor X. And he works really, really well as the narrator of this issue, especially in light of Uncanny X-Men number 309. He's dealt with his own demons and feelings about this. And so now he's really the character, more than any other, who can bring this issue the long-view perspective that it really calls for. Yeah, so I kind of love him being the narrator. Like, he's the character that's been there for most of Scott and Jean's relationship. I mean, you know, for a while he was out in space, but he was certainly there for the formative part. We talk a lot about younger characters serving as reader stand-ins, and this is a place where I think Professor Xavier is really the only character who's positioned to do that, because he's the character who's been alongside this story for as long as we have. Exactly. I mean, in the Marvel Universe, characters age very slowly. Like, if Scott and Jean had aged in real time, they would have been about 50-something at this point. But they don't, so instead we have become this older dude who's seen it all. And I also appreciate that Xavier is a guest at the wedding. We, as the readers, are guests at this wedding. We're not there right with Scott and Jean because this is something that they get to be just a little private about, even within the context of the story. Yeah, uh, we're not going to get any any uh, weird honeymoon photos. 
Yeah, I was going to say, there was that time that uh, Scott sent Professor Xavier a picture of him and Madeline in a heart-shaped bed, which begged two questions. A, why would you do that? And B, who took that picture? I thought we agreed that it was either Mr. Sinister or Eric the Red. Yeah, well, probably one of them. Or maybe Mr. Sinister dressed as Eric the Red. We don't know what everyone got up to that night. Maybe there were costumes. Maybe everyone was dressed as Eric the Red. Maybe that's just who you dress as in the Mar- in at least the X-Men chunk of the Marvel Universe. Come on down to Creepy Town tonight for an Eric the Red-themed orgy. Everybody's dressed as Eric the Red, and everybody parties like Eric the Red. Well, if, if, if Eric the Red is in this story, he is well-disguised. So going back to the text, um... This is actually, you know, going back kind of to, to, um, Madeline, it's, it's weird that she's not mentioned a little bit more in this issue, but yeah, she's, she's basically glossed out. Yeah, at one point Xavier mentions in his narration that this has to be weird for Scott because of what happened with his first marriage to Madeline. And I don't know, I'm of two minds about that. Like, on the one hand, I feel like Madeline Pryor totally got a raw deal for a thousand different reasons. Yeah, she did. But at the same time, like, this is about Scott and Jean. And I think if you're going to have, like, the bittersweet feel that Xavier's narration in this issue has, it should be about, you know, the passage of time and aging and change. And it shouldn't necessarily be about the genetically created clone wife who turned into a demon lady. Yeah, I think my frustration isn't that there's not more about Maddie in this issue. It's that there isn't something that focuses more on her in the lead up to it. Yeah, yeah, the way that 308 is the engagement, 309 is Xavier's past with Amelia Vote, and 310 is Cyclops and Cable finally bonding, I think there would absolutely be room for another issue in there exploring her legacy and her impact on both Scott and Jean and the X-Men in general. At least a backup story. Something, yeah. So, Fabian Nicieza had said when we talked to him in number 250 that his original script for this issue was more bittersweet and that it got editorially turned into something more just sweet. But I don't know. I feel like it absolutely is bittersweet. This is Xavier doing his best to put on this fatherly face, but having kind of a hard time because he feels the passage of time. He's so pleased, but he's not the one laughing out loud or throwing his fist in the air. He's just sort of calm and a little removed. Now, yeah, I would I would really like to read that original script. So this story is very much about continuity and resolution, but it's also very, very much about family. Um, and you see that as as the the as Scott and Jean are, are getting ready separately with with sort of their their each each of their kind of family units. Jean is with her mother, with Storm, and with a slightly nervous and standoffish Rachel. Yeah, yeah, because Rachel already found out from Jean earlier on that Jean and Scott were going to get married, and Rachel herself might have a chance of being born in this timeline. So she's ecstatic. Although Kubert draws her as kind of mopey looking but the the captions tell us that she's very happy well Kubert draws her as really tentative specifically about being there with gene as gene's getting ready she i i talked about you know Kubert is great with body language and he's great with with just imbuing the art with a huge amount of narrative and as you know storm and and Elaine are like right up there with Jean. Rachel is always sending off a little bit to the side, a little bit stiffly. Like she's not quite sure what she should be doing or if she belongs there. And honestly, I think that's really character appropriate. Even if she's happy, she's still really tentative in this relationship and not without reason. 
that makes a lot of sense given her rocky history with the Jean Grey of, of this universe. And so when Jean finally does hug Rachel, when they do connect, man, it gets me every time. I love their relationship. I wish it were explored more. Meanwhile, Scott is with Alex and with the other members of the original five, obviously, except for Jean. And again, as a unit of family. And there's a scene that I sort of think of as one of the classic central scenes of this issue, which is the bow tie scene, because none of these guys know how to tie a bow tie. Even Warren, who's had to grow up wearing one, you know, has always used clip-ons, which I totally buy, or had someone else to tie them for him. And Professor X comes in as they're all, you know, they've been passing this back and forth trying to, to, to figure out how to, how to tie it. It's not actually that hard. I've never done it myself. But there's 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 a, a great bit um, and where and Professor X, you know, sort of talks to them a little bit about where he is, um, ends with, What I have known for some time now is made official, in a way, by today's events. The hard, simple truth is that you are all undeniably adults now. And that leads me to question myself and wonder, do any of you even need the old prof anymore? And of course, he says this as he finishes tying the bow tie, which is lovely and also hilarious. And which they also then tease him about. But it's great. Like, I don't know, just Professor Xavier getting to be a little bit one of the guys is something we never, never see. And yes, he's their mentor. He's their father figure. He's the headmaster. But here he's just another person. He's just another member of this family. Well, we've been seeing that. We've been starting to see that in like the last half dozen issues, and we've talked about it on the show a couple times, and it's it's really neat as he sort of renegotiates those relationships with his adult students. And yeah, it's lovely, and it also leads to a spread that I feel like could be in a whole episode in and of itself, and this is the big wedding guests spread. And this is phenomenal. So crowd scenes are awful to draw. And they're a pain, and it's really easy to kind of phone them in. And Hubert draws every character, draws the way they're sitting, draws their faces, yeah, their posture, all of that stuff, so individually. Yeah, yeah. It is still a little confusing, though, because Hubert's character designs can be a little bit samey. And so it's kind of hard to tell who certain characters are, and that's not helped by the fact that Joe Rosas has a number of coloration errors on this spread. Like Storm in the background, you can tell she's Storm because she's wearing the same dress as before, is a white woman with uh, red hair. Whoops. Yeah, what the hell is happening there? But I checked it out, and while, like I said, it's hard to tell exactly who's who, I think everybody who you would want to be at this wedding, including a lot of human family members and human allies, I think they're all here. This isn't another situation of Wolfsbane not being at Ilyana's funeral. I appreciate that so much. And even the Starjammers who aren't here, there's a reference made to Corsair sending a card later. So nothing is forgotten. And in an issue like this, you have to do that right. You can't let yourself forget even a minor character who should be there. There are, however, a couple continuity errors on this page. Storm is one of them. The other one is John Gray, who is in this scene in the audience and then shown on the next page walking Jean down the aisle. Oh, um, maybe he has a placeholder for his seat, so no one takes it, and his placeholder is a mannequin of himself that he puts in his chair. That's made even creepier by the fact that he really looks like Cameron Hodge. 
Maybe it's Cameron Hodge. I hope it's not Cameron Hodge. He's not welcome at this wedding. It's probably not Cameron Hodge. The one detail I do want to call out, though, is just glorious. So Galen Gray is uh, Sarah Gray's daughter, one of uh, Jean's nieces. I think Jean's only niece. And her and her brother are sitting on one side, and one of them is pointing at Artie and Leech, who are across the aisle being enthusiastic and oblivious. And you see Jubilee reaching down to sort of admonish Galen, uh, presumably telling her that it's not polite to to point and stare. It's just a little thing. There's no dialogue acknowledging it, but it's such it's such a genuine kid moment. Something else that's kind of nice about this is that they very clearly haven't done groom and bride sides of the audience because Jean's family is spread across both. Right, and that makes perfect sense because Scott and Jean have been part of the school and have been together since they were so freaking young. Their families are largely merged in many ways. Well, and also because it would kind of be a dick move to do that when there's only one member of Scott's actual family who's there. Oh, are his grandparents here? I don't think they are. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. This is uh, one of the problems with Kubert's uh, character designs, is that there are a number of humans there. I'm not sure who a lot of them are. Yeah, they might be some of the folks in the background. I'm not entirely certain. Let's see. There's Moira. There's Sean. I'm not sure who the people behind them are. Oh, I, th- I think that's Lila and her band. Yeah, I don't think they're here. Oh. Or no, no, there they are. There they are. They're they're sitting maybe in the back. I'm just going to go ahead and assume that they are there because it makes me happier as a reader of this comic to assume that. Yeah, I, I would like them to be there. So they are. There we go. Done. Canon. F- fair enough. Um, Scott is also extremely weirded out by the fact that everyone is looking at him, which is kind of adorable. Yeah, although Xavier does mention in his narration that Scott is just so clearly happy to have everyone here, to have his found family all here sharing this with him. It's just heartwarming. Every page is so heartwarming. Well, and again, this issue is just such a good example of what comics can do outside of action. It's so well put together. The text and the images are so mutually integral to the actual story that's being told. There's so much history and continuity in both. Like, it's a cool issue regardless, and it's good storytelling regardless. But there's there's so much here. God, there really is. And... The wedding, the ceremony itself, is, of course, the centerpiece of the issue. And so we get that ceremony. We get that dialogue. We get those vows that Scott and Jean wrote. But first we get Storm's dress. Yes, we do. Okay, I love the hell out of Storm's dress. It's yellow and fuchsia and and black in these sort of three bands for the different sections of it. They're not bands because it's got... A drop waist that's that's a, a low V, and so the fuchsia section, because of the way it's drawn and the skirt is drawn, looks like a leotard, but is actually the bodice of the dress. I think it looks really cool, and I think those colors actually work really well with Storm. I mean, I think Storm looks good in literally everything, but also that this dress is so terrible that it might come full circle into awesomeness? Well, I think it absolutely comes full circle into awesomeness, partially because Aurora looks good in everything. There are also a ton of just, like, bits of offhand dialogue between characters. Like, this is about Scott and Jean, but it's also about every single other relationship that the two of them have with their families, with their friends, with the people around them. 
which I really love. Like one of the things that I, I like most in this issue is just sort of the quiet offhand conversation that Scott and Aurora have after Storm gets up to the front before Jean shows up. And then Jean appears looking super awesome and dramatic with her dad, who looks like Cameron Hodge, and it's weird. Um, walks her down the aisle, and they do the actual ceremony. And God, the vows are so good. They're so, so, so good. Like, I feel like I, I know we we did we said this in 22, and I kind of want to say, I feel like we should just read through. There were times I was lost, and you found me. There were days which were heavy, and you lightened my heart. Through it all, since the day we met, there was you for me and me for you. That hasn't changed. That will never change. Through pain and passion, through sorrow and hope, through death and through life, no matter what tomorrow may bring, we will face it together. And then we get the second best kiss in X-Men comics. The best kiss, of course, being Rogan Gambit in X-Men 41, also drawn by Andy Kubert, um, who from, henceforth will be referred to as Andy Good at Kisses Kubert. And I love Xavier's line in his narration as Scott and Jean kiss. The hoorays start with Jubilee. The applause, I realize, much to my surprise, starts with me. Xavier is so reserved so much of the time, and here he's not. Here he's just happy for his kids. They finally get a win. These kids that he's brought into this perhaps unwise paramilitary organization, they've been through so much pain. And and that's what Xavier talks about at the end of Uncanny X-Men number 308 at their Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and then they dance to the song One by U2, not as Lila Cheney jokes to Hyperactive by Thomas Dolby, which is actually a really good song, but uh, not particularly context appropriate. So One is an interesting song. Now, I love One. I love, I think it's Achtung Baby that it's from. I'm, I'm a fan of that era of U2. But yeah, it's it's a dark song, no question. One of the things I actually really like about One in this context, and I think it it works even better retrospectively, is that it's both a really good love song and a really good breakup song. And that's very, very Scott and Jean. They're never not a little bittersweet, but both parts are all, like the good and the bad parts are always both there. They always coexist. You don't really get one without the other. Exactly, yeah. Now, Bono of U2 disagrees. I found a little bit with uh, about him talking about the song. There was melancholy about it, but there was also strength. One is not about oneness, it's about difference. It's not the old hippie idea of let's all live together. It's a much more punk rock concept. It's anti-romantic. We are one, but not the same. We get to carry each other. It's a reminder that we have no choice. I'm still disappointed when people hear the chorus line as got to rather than we get to carry each other. Like it or not, the only way out of here is if I give you a leg up the wall and you pull me after you. There's something very unromantic about that. See, I don't think that is fundamentally unromantic. I mean, I think it's unromantic per one of the definitions of the word, you know, the the, the version of romantic that implies tinged with unreality or focused on on sort of an idealized version. But like, it's, yeah, that's cool. It's a good love song. Well, and one of the things I love about Scott and Jean's relationship is that it does feel real. It's not just a magical, Prince Charming, sweeping off of one's feet kind of relationship. It's messy and it's painful and they've had to claw their way to where they are. And, you know, it's not going to last forever. And so I think the song is actually perfect based on that. Yeah, it gets, I think, I think it's more and more perfect 
as time goes on and as we look at it in retrospect than it may have been at the moment. But yeah, um, that's I, I absolutely agree. And this is something that you, you mentioned that their their relationship feels very genuine. And I think that's worth commenting on because there are a lot of relationships in comics that feel really contrived and theirs does at points. But at the same time, the arc that that's gotten them specifically to here is really organic. And their their relationship is, I think, one of the places where sort of the soap opera-ness of X-Men is actually kind of a plus because it's given them a lens for a degree and, and a context for a degree of complexity that fictional romance often lacks. Meanwhile, elsewhere on the Xavier School grounds, Sabretooth, in his manacles and uh, metal oven mitts, is contemplating fucking up the wedding, but someone kicks him over, and Sabretooth sees that that someone has written, don't even think about it, in the snow. Do you think he, like, did it with P? I mean, m- maybe? I feel like there are a number of ways to write in snow, and that is merely one of them. Yeah, but I feel like it would also be a really Wolverine move. Clearly this is Wolverine who's, you know, been making sure the wedding's gonna go okay, but isn't actually coming to it. Yeah, which is one of those really bad trains of thought to start, because then it gets to the, oh shit, I bet Logan totally has sent Mark a bunch of trees in the woods, and now Sabretooth is going around peeing on everything? As, as like, a weird competitive thing? Maybe that's why Wolverine came back, just to, like, mess with him? But this is, this is, this is a bad train of thought, and I hate it, and I'm unhappy to be honest. Wait, 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 though. Think about it. As we learn in some stupid Wolverine story years later, Wolverine is descended from a race of wolf people, and Sabretooth is descended from a race of cat people. So I feel like Wolverine has been peeing on everything, and then Sabretooth's been, like, rubbing the side of his face against everything. No, that's happy marking. Cat's territory p2 oh okay well maybe he's peeing on everything while rubbing his face on other things that sounds like something victor creed would do do you think he like vengefully coughs up hairballs in really awkward places oh i think he absolutely does Sabretooth coughing up a hairball really really i get that he's still menacing and terrible but it's also just kind of funny and cute Well, anyway, back at the wedding, they're doing all the usual wedding traditions. All the single ladies line up to catch the bouquet, and Rogue flies to catch it. And then all the men, single men, line up to catch the garter belt, and Gambit blows everybody else up so that he can get it. He, like, charges up, I don't even know what, something. Like, shouldn't there be blood and bones and bit of brain everywhere? Like, at the very least, all the rented tuxes are going to be ruined. First of all, it's a minor explosion. Second, there is no way that those tuxes are rented. Between Professor Xavier and Warren Worthington III and comic book art of the era, they are definitely tailor-made. Third, unstable molecules. And fourth, I assume that at this point, Master Thief Gambit, who can sneak around in metal boots, has enough control over his powers that he can kind of do a gentle crowd-scattering explosion. He just lightly explodes all of his friends. Mildly exploded, sort of, sort of like I, t- I talked about, you know, minor manslaughter. But I do appreciate that the bouquet catch and the garter catch are done by Rogue and Gambit, both of whom cheat. Like, if there's anything to sell them as a couple without stealing Scott and Jean's thunder, it is exactly this right here. There was a long weird moment when. I had to think about whether they were, in fact, the next people at that wedding to get married, but then I realized that, no, it was actually Storm. Oh, yeah, that's true. She uh, she marries T'Challa way before uh, Rogue and Gambit get married. Still, eventually they will, and it will be great. So, 
as the wedding wraps up, Jean decides, you know what? A lot of the guests have left and Professor Xavier, you're not out as a mutant, but I am. And she telekinetically lifts Xavier out of his wheelchair so that she can dance with him. And God, I legitimately cry every time I read this. It's a really lovely scene. Um, she also brings up the fact that that her mother always told her that it was it was polite. You save the last dance for the person who brought you there. And in that case, it's very much Charles. But I can never read that bit without thinking of the context in which I learned that idiom, which was Molly Ivins talking about the Texas legislature. Oh, Molly Ivins. I miss her. Especially in election years. Oof, yeah. But this scene works very well, especially if you've already read that first story in the wedding album we just covered. If you've already read so much about Jean being taken in by the kindly, respectful, encouraging Charles Xavier, about him making a home for her after what happened to her friend Annie, and after Jean's telepathy flared out of control. Like, this is a wonderful payoff to that little bit, and to just Jean and Charles' history together. Scott and Charles get a moment a bit later on when Scott seeks Charles out before um, he and Jean leave on their honeymoon. And it's a noteworthy scene for a couple reasons. First, that it's Scott Summers voluntarily and deliberately seeking someone out in order to talk about his feelings. Nice. And second, that I'm fairly sure that it's the first time he uses Charles Xavier's first name. Admittedly, he, he uses the whole name, but he does say Charles. I think that's worth a lot. And I think it makes sense that there's this turning point in their relationship. There's Scott finally letting himself see Xavier as a little bit of a peer at this point, at this transition, at this milestone. Yeah, it's it's a really lovely scene. And again, we'll stick that in the as mentioned. I don't think we need to read all the way through it. But um, yeah, those are it's 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 a lovely issue. Finally, we close with Charles finding what he had misplaced in the the general chaos, which is his own letter from Logan. Dear Chuck, lighten up, your old pal, Logan. Which brings us to the second half of the wedding album, um, the the much lighter and much more fun version. This is written by Lobdell and Nisiaza together, penciled by Ken Lashley, Tom Lyle, Ron Garney, and Jay Lee, inked by Scott Hanna, Andrew Papoy, Bill Sienkiewicz, and Jay Lee, and... Um, there's also a, a closing image fully by Bill Sienkiewicz, and this this is Kitty's wedding present to Scott and Jean. It is a video album. So video albums used to be a thing back in the 90s. Like, you ever see Reality Bites? Kind of like in that. It's an Instagram story. There we go. It's an Instagram story. Although in theory, in the context of the Earth 616 reality, it was actual video clips, not just little still images like we see here. There's video on Instagram. Social media is very confusing to me. I learn something every day about it, though. Also, Snapchat might be a Snapchat thing, although I feel like Kitty is more an Instagram person than a Snapchat person. Well, anyway, some of the art is just reprinted art from the, at the time, still upcoming wedding issue, but most of it is new art of scenes from the wedding reception and quotes from the featured characters in those pictures with font styles and sizes that change from line to line. It actually really captures the feel of a 90s video album, even though it's just stills. Like, it's overlapping and it's dense and it's energetic, and it really works. And you definitely know that there are like horrible transitions with neon triangles and like little wavy lines. Oh man, it was absolutely the 90s, so you bet your ass there were. And the pictures of the various characters, some are very posed, some are very candid, and there's not a lot in between. Like it really, really works. 
Yeah, it's all, all of these little cameos. And we could cover everything, but that would take forever. So I feel like let's maybe just talk about our favorites, starting near the beginning with a small portrait of Archangel and the caption from him. Could have been magic, Red. Kitty, why did you put Warren saying that he would be a better partner for Jean than her new husband in their wedding video? Warren Kenneth Worthington III, go to your nest and think about what you've done. I really love the part with Shatterstar, though. It's just a picture of him, you know. It looks like he got caught candidly as he turned around. Personally, I cannot think of anything less appealing than committing the rest of your airtime to a single individual. I give the marriage three seasons, max. Look for early strong ratings, but an early cancellation. I do, of course, wish the two of you the best of luck, however. May you have many spin-offs. Oh, shatty buns. You're very bad at peopling in some ways. He's trying. He is trying, and that totally comes through. We also have a page with an image of Jean's niece and nephew, Galen and Joey. Do you remember, Jay, when they were collectively the super character Shatterbox, when Nanny and the Orphan Maker kidnapped them and brainwashed them into joining the Lost Boys and Girls in early X-Factor? I do. Well, uh, they got better. Unfortunately, they'll be doomed in Chris Claremont's much later story, End of Grace, like the rest of the Grey family. But, uh, still, they're, they're real cute here, so, so that's good. Yeah, they've got a few good years. We have a wonderful single-page Jay Lee drawing of Beast playing the saxophone and looking horrified while Banshee is shattering a microphone with his voice, and I love it. I love Jay Lee's art in general, but it's also just fun to see Banshee, like, not as the stead, boring background character. Like, this is the Banshee that gets freaky with Moira McTaggart every night. I will also bring up that Beast canonically also plays the guitar, although he doesn't in this. Mm -hmm. There are also a couple of wonderful images uh, in which Warren, with a rose, is about to kiss Psylocke. And then the next page over, uh, it focuses on Nightcrawler having teleported Betsy away with his own rose. And he's being all suave, and she looks highly entertained as Warren is still, like, kissing now the Banff pattern from where Betsy was. What I love about this is both that it's a really good counterpoint to Warren's thing in the beginning, and also that the thing about Nightcrawler is that he's not actually trying to steal anyone's girlfriend— He's not really trying to prove that he'd better he'd be a better boyfriend. He just needs to cut in now and then to demonstrate that no one will ever be as smooth as he is. Or will ever wear a turtleneck as attractively. God, valid. So, yeah, that is the wedding album, and that is the wedding, and it is all just a warm hug. It's a wonderful, wonderful event. I love the lead-up to it. I love the execution. I love that Scott and Jean's honeymoon leads into a terrifying dark future in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. This is where the 90s are just great. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is such a good bit and such a good era. And... Yeah, it's it's really easy to dismiss and to think of the 90s as, as this dark time, but God, there are definitely, definitely some gems in there. And this, this is an issue that's about family and about continuity, and as comes with anything that's about um, continuity, there are questions. Some of them, listeners, come from you. And uh, let's see, Andrea Morado asks on Tumblr, do you think that Scott and Jean are more interesting as a couple or not? What would you think of Scott and Jean in a similar comic like Spider-Man Renew Your Vows, doing their own thing, possibly away from the mansion? That's a really good question, and I feel like 
if I answered this tomorrow, I'd have a different answer than today and so on and so on. But for right now, I think I like Scott and Jean best, not as a couple, but specifically after they have been a couple. These are characters who have gone through an immense amount of character development after they split, and in Scott's case, after Jean died back in Morrison's run. I mean, Scott was with Emma for a lot of that, sure. He wasn't single, but in that relationship, he was much more of an independent individual than I think he ever was with Jean. And Jean herself, while she hasn't been back for long since her recent resurrection— She's already gone through a ton of character development thanks to the Phoenix Resurrection miniseries and X-Men Red. And I don't think the way that they've stood on their own two feet after being together would have been possible without the contrast to that long relationship and without that having been a previous major phase of their lives. Also, bonus example... The time-displaced Scott and Jean that spent the last many, many years in the 616's present day, they were fascinating for many reasons, but in part because they knew what the relationship was supposed to be based on what their older selves had done, and they rejected that. They went a different direction. That said, Scott and Jean are a goddamn wonderful couple, and I would never want to take that history away, but I kind of hope now that they're both alive again at the same time for the first time in ages— that they don't just get back together by default. It would feel like it would feel like a step backward unless it was handled very deftly. God, yeah, I so so wholeheartedly agree with really all of that. I will add though, with regards to the Spider-Man Renew Your Vows notice, that there have been a number of what if stories that actually kind of took that approach, um, which is cool. And in general, I'm in favor of more stories about more things. So my my answer is the same as Miles's with regards to general continuity, but. If there's a good story to be found in it, sure, absolutely. You know what I would like to see? I'd like to see the relationship history of Scott and Jean from Earth 811. From the one where the Phoenix worked very differently, and the one that was inevitably leading up to Days of Future Past. It would be dark, but it would be kind of cool. It would be kind of like, um, what was that, uh, Caprica, that old show that led up to Battlestar Galactica and came out after it. Like, you know what's going to happen, and that makes every moment feel more valuable. Damn. Crooked Knight asks on Tumblr, Now that you're fresh off a deep dive into all the continuity leading up to it, how satisfied are you with the renewed Scott-Jean relationship? Does it work better in context, or is something that stands alone? Way, way better with context. And when I say context, I'm not talking about necessarily the immediate context of X-Men Blue and Gold, because that's weird and awkward, and you don't actually really get to see much of their dynamic except in the few issues that immediately lead up to the wedding. But... This is a story that is very, very much the sum of their entire history as individuals and as a couple leading up to it. And it's very much about that continuity, both, you know, the specific events of it, but also just sort of the sense of legacy of continuity and of how much history has gone into sort of bringing all of the characters to this specific moment. And while I think it stands alone remarkably well, if you're coming in without that context and does a pretty good job of, of setting it up. I think it's actually probably a pretty good jumping on point in terms of places where you can pick up and not need a massive primer. Um, having that history makes the story that much richer. Oh, absolutely. I think having read especially the 05 era of X-Factor, like that first major part of X-Factor before it became a government-sponsored team. like Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's Scott and Gene as grown-ups, as independent grown-ups for the first time, like, navigating a very complicated relationship. 
so yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think it is. I think it's much. I think it's very good on its own, but much, much, much richer for having that additional context. Now, to provide a bit of context for our show, we are fully listener supported. Some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional concepts and characters. It wouldn't be an episode of Jane Miles Explain the X Men without hearing from the angry Claremontian narrator, Elliot K. Steve Lacey. I have had the pleasure of knowing you both for years now, and the privilege of occupying a passenger seat on the journey that has brought you both here. These last few years have been a long, difficult road. You've survived heartbreak and triumph, loss and bewilderment. You've persevered through time and through trials, and the bond you've forged has been broken and remade stronger for it. Elliot, Steve, as you enter this new chapter of your life together, remember the long, twisting road that brought you here. I now pronounce you married. Congratulations and best wishes to you both as you enter the slow slide toward an inevitable series of betrayals, deaths, and narratively forced resurrections. Did you just marry two of our listeners? Yeah, it's cool. They're good guys. They'll like each other. Um, anyway, anyway, uh, on a very, very different note, I, I believe the mic, along with the garter, goes to Sexy Gambit. Gambit Tink introducing to X-Men to Nolan's traditions be an important part of his contribution to the team. Tank's given scarecrows? Check. Blowing up all the bachelors to put that garter on old Jean Grey and show her what she'd be missing by marrying Monda Orb Uno instead of staying a free agent? Check. But Gambit, Tink, why stop there? The wedding, she ain't be over yet, and she ain't nearly sexy enough. Mike Hyastic, maybe you unbuttoned that shirt of yours a little. It encouraged the rest of the guests to loosen up, too. Gambit, Tink, all this fancy clothing ain't nothing but wrapping paper, no? Steven Braun, you old swampagator. How's about you get on that stage that Lila Shaney done vacated and get the guests all hot and spicy with some of that Cajun Zydeco? Let's get everyone's blood pumping. That's the first step to the mutant after-party Gambit have in mind. Scotty and Jean may be christening their marriage on their own. But Mike, Steven, and the rest of us sensual creatures gonna have a night that puts theirs to shame. This Gambit guarantee. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. Marriages performed in context of thanks on this podcast are not legal in any state or nation. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, nobody gets married. But there's an X-Force crossover, which is basically the equivalent. Not really. Oh, fine. Fine.